Lord, we thank you um, for your great goodness. We thank you that you've given us the treasure of your word. We thank you that you've bestowed upon your church, your Holy Spirit, to be the interpreter of the word to us. We pray that as we look at your word today, both uh, here as well as in the catechism classes, that your spirit would illuminate the word to us, that your spirit would um, teach, convict, rebuke, exhort, as he sees the need, because, Lord, he knows our hearts. We pray that we would be built up in the faith so that we can be further used for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, if you're going to class, you can be dismissed. Those of you that are stuck with me, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 6. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, meaning Jesus, how they might destroy him. If you remember, Jesus exposed their hardness of heart uh, by healing a man on the Sabbath. And they were very upset about that. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, and a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him, because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many... So that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him, and and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Today I want to talk about the twelve that are listed here in the book of Mark. And by way of introduction, uh, I want to mention the need for the appointment of the twelve. Why, why at this time in Jesus' ministry did he call these men to himself and appoint them as his apostles? Well, there were three reasons. The first reason was the, the opposition of the Pharisees, which is mentioned in verse 6. The Pharisees at this point, their, their hostility to Jesus has, had risen to a point where they began to plot together to kill him. And as we look at the background to the Gospels, we learn that the Pharisees and the Herodians were actually enemies themselves, but of course a common foe brings enemies together, right? So they must have both despised Jesus quite a bit in order to join ranks together against him. So the Pharisees were now plotting against Jesus, and of course he was aware of this. The other problem was just the opposite. It was his popularity with the people. It says here that uh, so many people were coming to Jesus at this time that there was a possibility that they literally might crush him. In other words, they were pressing in. So many people were pressing in on Jesus uh, that he had to get a small boat ready because if they continued to press in, if the crowds had their way, they would have literally trampled Jesus to death in their attempt to touch him. So Jesus then uh, chose these 12 that he might... um, 
further his mission while he was here. Alexander McLaren says this, he says, The choice of the twelve marks an epoch in the development of Christ's work and was occasioned by both currents, which we find running so strong at this point. Pharisaic hatred was becoming uh, threatening, and popular enthusiasm was opening opportunities which he singly could not utilize. So Jesus um, called the twelve because of both opposition and popularity. But a third reason is hinted at here in our text, where it says in verse 11 and 12 that the demons, as they were wont to do apparently when Jesus showed up, would cry out and say, you are the Holy One of God, or you are the Christ, or something of that nature. Now you would think Jesus would like the press, right? You know, they say, you know, bad, bad press is better than no press at all. Well, that's actually not true. Um, Jesus didn't want their press. He didn't want them saying that he was the Holy One of God. Uh, even though what they were saying was true. Why? Well, because we know that the devil is a liar and demons are liars, right? So, ironically, even though what they were saying was true, people wouldn't have believed them because they're liars. So, in other words, what they were saying was true, but in fact, people would assume it was false because it was coming from a demon. So, he, he muzzled them because their witness would have actually hurt his mission rather than furthered it. So now let's look at who the twelve are. First of all, when we look at the Gospels and Acts, there's actually four lists given of the twelve. Um, and they, they don't exactly line up. I don't know if you've ever noticed. Have you noticed that before? Okay, so uh, of the twelve, eight of them, eight of the names line up, but then there's a few of them, actually nine of them line up, but it, there's three of them which are a little like, well, I'm not so sure about that. So when we compare the list, what we see is that um, in Acts, Judas is not there. Well, that's obvious, because why? Jesus, Judas, he was dead by then, right? He had uh, hung himself. But then we see there's two names uh, listed here which uh, do not line up in the list. One here in, in Mark is this guy named Thaddeus. You see Thaddeus? See him there? Okay. Well, Thaddeus is mentioned um, in a couple, he's mentioned here in Mark, and then he's mentioned also in Matthew, but in Luke, he's not mentioned, and in Acts, he's not mentioned. Rather, we get somebody named Judas, son of James. Uh, and most scholars believe that Thaddeus, who also in Matthew, has a, another name called Lebius, which means heart. Isn't that sweet? Um that this Thaddeus Lebius was also Judas, the uh, Judas of James, the son of James, probably, that we find in Luke and Acts. So Thaddeus and Judas are really one and the same. Now, of course, we know it's very common then for someone to have two names, maybe even three names. I have four names. Did you know that? You know what they are? You want to hear them? David. You knew that. James. John. Uh huh. And Vaughn, I have four names. How many do you have? Bet you only have two or three. <laughs> this is why Russian literature is so hard. Do you ever read anything, any Russian literature? People have like ten names, you know. It's like, who, who is he talking about? So, very common back then, you know. So, we have Matthew, who was Levi, right? Um, 
So Thaddeus was Judas, um, or Lebius. Uh, we have John Mark, that's really two names, is John or Mark. Um, there was a guy named Jesus who was really also called Justice. And so we see this, it's a very common phenomenon in Scripture. And this accounts not only for Thaddeus, but accounts for the fact that when we look in, in the list here, we have this guy named Bartholomew who's mentioned. But in John, there, there's no Bartholomew mentioned, but there's a person named Nathaniel mentioned. And so most scholars think that Nathaniel and Bartholomew are really the same person. Because in, in the synoptics, Bartholomew is linked to Philip, but in, in, uh, in John we see that he's linked to Nathaniel. Philip and Nathaniel are linked together there. So probably the same person by a different name. <clears throat> Lastly, uh, important for understanding the twelve, this guy named Simon, and your Bible may say the Canaanite. It's not Canaanite. Uh, um, th- this word has been misinterpreted, and so the word Canaanite really should be Canaanian. <clears throat> Maybe some of your versions have that. And a Canaanite, excuse me, sounds like a location, right? Like he's from Canaan. But in fact, a Canaanian was a political party. That's why Simon the Canaanian is really the same as Simon the Zealot, because the Zealots and the Canaanians were the same thing. They were a political party, which which were um, we today we might call them the Tea Party. No, what would we call them? Uh, <laughs> They were the, the radical anti-government party. Okay? The, the, these, these were the Jewish patriots who wanted to overthrow Rome. And as a matter of fact, the, the, the Canaanians or the Zealots were the ones who ultimately were responsible, from a human point of view, of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Because they led a revolt that resulted in Rome crushing Jerusalem and destroying the temple. So... Um, that's who they were. Does that help? Sure. sure. Okay. But what were they like? Well, when we look at the twelve, there's many things we could point out, but I'm talking about them as a group. What we see is that the twelve were uh, simple, ordinary people. Simple, ordinary people. We, as we look at the twelve, uh, um, none of them are well-educated, as far as we know. Fishermen, right? Tax collectors, political zealots. Uh, none of them were rich. None of them were noble. And none, we, there's been no no ability to trace any of them to any royal family, and none of them were famous. They were ordinary folk, just like you and me. Um, and what's so striking about the twelve is that there's nothing striking about them. Now think about it. If you were going to start an organization that was going to conquer the world, wouldn't you want to get the best, the brightest? Right, wouldn't you? Hmm. Jesus picked ordinary, simple people. Second feature of the twelve is that they were varied, and in some cases, opposite to one another. For example, we see the action-packed Peter, right? But then we have the contemplative Nathaniel or Bartholomew. We have the faithful John. We have the doubting Thomas. We have uh, Matthew, who's a Roman tax collector. And we have Simon the Zealot. 
I mean, do you realize how much hatred Simon would have for Levi? Yet they were in this group of the twelve. We have Nathaniel, who Jesus looked at and said, in this man there's no guile. And then we have Judas, who was a treacherous traitor. So we see a, a wide variety of personalities here represented in Jesus' circle of the twelve. Another feature of the twelve is that they were, how shall we say, despised. Matthew, being a tax collector, was despised by his fellow Jewish countrymen because he would be considered a traitor to them. On the other hand, Simon, the zealot, or the Cananean, he was he would end up, because he was a, a political fanatic, he would have been uh, suspect by the Roman authorities. So Jesus calls into his group men which would possibly cause Jewish hostility and Roman hostility. And of course, all of them were looked down upon by the educated elite of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. Yet, what did they become? What they became were apostles for Jesus Christ. They became ambassadors for his kingdom. They became founders of his church. They became, as as even Jesus' opponents said in the book of Acts, these men have turned the world upside down. These ordinary men, these men which were opposite even to one another, these men who were despised, these men who even because of their differences had conflicts within their own group, these were the men, this was the band of brothers that overturned the world. Who would ever think that could have occurred? So the question is, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from Jesus calling these twelve. There's many lessons, but I just want to mention a few. One lesson is this. God's ways are not our ways. Let's look at a couple of scriptures. We'll come back to Mark. Look at Isaiah 55. I want you to see it. It's really in the Bible. It's really here. Isaiah 55. The Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my your ways, my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is echoed in Romans chapter 11 by the Apostle Paul, if you'd like to turn there and read it with me. Where Paul is marveling at God's plan of uh, redemption, And he says this at the end of the book of Romans in chapter 11. He says in verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Why are they past finding out? Because his ways are not our ways. And our thoughts are not his thoughts. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. 
Amen. So God's ways are not our ways. And so God does the unexpected thing, doesn't he? And God then, the, God uses ordinary people. That's what God does. Um, one author pointed out that when Jesus chose the twelve, uh, the question is asked, you know, why did he pick ordinary people like this? And his answer was, because there's nothing, nothing better around. And you know what? No matter who's called and who's used, the reality is everybody's broken in some way. Everybody's broken in some way because we live in a fallen world. And when you look at the church, it's always a mystery to me that the church persists throughout the ages. It's a mystery to me how much has been done through the, through the instrumentality of the church over the, over the centuries, really, when you look at the people that comprise the church. But that's what Jesus meant when he said that his kingdom is like leaven, which is hidden. And you, 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 when you just look through the eye, natural eye, you think, how can God do anything with these people? Don't you ever feel that way when you look in the mirror? But it's it's God. It's God. So God uses ordinary people, and not just ordinary people, but God uses weak and foolish and despised people. That's who God uses. Look at 1 Corinthians, a passage you undoubtedly know well, but in chapter 1, we see Paul explicitly tell us that God chooses and uses those the world would never choose and use. Verse 26, For you see your calling, chapter 1, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. We have numerous examples of this throughout history, both biblical history and secular history. I mean, we think of Abraham and Sarah. This is a very clear example. Old folks. Uh, she's barren. No human way they're going to have a child, and then lo and behold, a miraculous birth, right? And when you look at Romans 4, and, and Paul discusses this, he says this in verse 17, he says, As it is written, I have made you, he's, he's quoting the Lord speaking to Abraham. I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who, whom he believed. God, listen, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. In other words, even though it didn't exist, God spoke it as if it did. And by speaking it, God brought it into being. That's what a promise is from God. It's him speaking something that doesn't exist but then he brings it into being. 
So he takes these old people who, uh, humanly speaking, could not conceive, and it is through their seed the Messiah comes. Verse 19. So not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. In other words, there was nothing humanly possible. There was no way from a human perspective that this miracle was going to happen. If they were going to have a child through Sarah, it would have to be a work of God. And what a work of God, amen? We think of the example of David. His entire history is 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 a mark of God taking the ordinary. He was called when he was a young lad, the youngest in his in his uh, family. When he goes and and scores his wonderful victory against Goliath, of course he was outnumbered. He was outmanned. Goliath had the better weapons, and David conquers in the name of Jehovah. Amen. We think of the case of Moses, who when God comes to him, uh, Moses pleads and says, I can't speak. So, you know, I, I can't be your spokesman because I can't speak. We think of Gideon, uh, one of the great judges in Israel. He said, oh my Lord, when, when God called him, he said, oh my Lord. He says, um, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am least in my house. And he was right. But God used him, the least and the weakest. We think of Jeremiah, when God called him to prophesy, he said, Our Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. And then think of Paul, the example of Paul. Paul says of himself, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. And then he says that the gospel was given for sinners, and then he says of himself, of whom I am chief. That's who God called uh, when we look at uh, church history, we see numerous examples of this. We think of someone as, as uh, well known as John Bunyan, who wrote *Pilgrim's Progress*. He was he was a uh, shoemaker, a cobbler. He was profane. He was foul. He was uh, a very debauched person. Yet God called him and saved him, renewed him, changed him, and then threw him in jail. And it was there while in jail for 12 years that he wrote one of the, one of the books that is, is probably in the top five books that's ever been read, Pilgrim's Progress. And so his, his, he takes this guy who's a nobody, who's a drunkard, who's a foul man, and then takes this man, transforms him, and through him has sent the message of the gospel around the world for centuries. That's God, amen. You think of Charles Spurgeon. If you know his story, it's amazing. He had no college. He had no seminary training. And by the time, before he was 20 years old, he was preaching to 25,000 people a week. Many of whom were coming to Christ. We think of someone like Dale Muti. He, he was a shoe salesman. Did you, did you know that? And God saved him. Made him a, a, an evangelist, a revivalist, if you will, during the Second Great Awakening. Uh, of course, he... He ended up uh, helping to found the YMCA. And of course, we have the YMCA. We have uh, uh, Moody Bible College, Moody Radio. Many of these things that have grown out of uh, the life of D.L. Moody, Moody. And he was just a simple shoe salesman. And as we look at history, we could, we could mention many, 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 many more. God takes ordinary people and he does extraordinary things. So, let me ask a few questions. Question number one. Why does God act this way? 
Well, as I've already pointed out, he doesn't really have a choice. Now, he could take educated people. He could take rich people. And he does that. Because if you remember, Paul didn't say there's no rich or no noble, but not many. The vast majority of those that he calls are the, are the weak, the broken, the poor, the despised. So there are some Christian celebrities, but the vast majority of God's people are not in that category. And why does he do this? He does it so that he receives all the glory. Because when you look at what God can do with a broken, profane person, you have to say, only God could do this. Only God could take a D.O. Moody, and people would literally laugh at him because of the way he talked. He kind of talked through his nose, and his English was really bad. I mean, if you read his books, you can say, this guy's kind of a Hoosier. But the power of God was with him. And people marveled, because in spite of his shortcomings, in spite of the way he looked, in spite of not having an education, God was doing miraculous things through him. So, You couldn't account for it any other way. You see, that's the point. You can't account for how God used someone like Moody or a Bunyan or even someone like Paul. Even though Paul was educated, Paul was a Christ hater. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He he turned on everything that he was groomed to be. Do you understand that? And there was no explanation other than the power of God. As a matter of fact, Paul even says that. Look at uh, um, 2 Corinthians for a moment. In chapter 10, uh, no, chapter, chapter 12. Paul's talking about, in chapter 12, about the revelations that God had given him. Um, and he says... Verse 5, of such a one, meaning the person he was describing, and he was just really describing himself in the third person because he didn't want to really be boasting, but he was boasting. He says, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities or in my weaknesses. Now, that's not what we do today. If you go to a church website, they won't talk about where they're not doing well. Right? Right? When you send out a resume, you don't say, I'm really bad at this. I'm going to apply for this job, and I'm really bad at the skill you need. We don't do that. It's bad PR, right? So we want to highlight the good things. Paul is highlighting the fact that he's a broken person, that he has weaknesses. For though I might desire to boast, verse 6, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Um, interesting scripture for a lot of reasons. Because the question is, was the exalted above measure, meaning lest I exalt myself above measure? think highly of myself than I ought, or does it mean lest others exalt me above measure? Maybe both. 
But he says, concerning this thing, this, this uh, thorn, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And what did the Lord say? He said, no. Because that thing, whatever it was, and there's a lot of debate about that, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now this is the verse that's quoted a lot, but I believe it is misunderstood. Because I believe when we, we quote it, what we're really saying is God, God's strength is made manifest by removing my weakness. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying it's manifest in my weakness. In the very moment I am weak, Christ can be strong in me. We often, we often pray for our weakness to be turned into strength, and then we wait before we act. That's the mistake we make. Because what we're, what we're really saying is, we're reading this verse as, not his strength is made perfect in my weakness, but rather he will transform my weakness into strength. That's not what he's saying. Now, it doesn't mean you won't be strong, but you'll be strong while you're weak. That means you're being used at the very moment when you feel least able to be used. When you feel least prepared, then you can be most used by God. When you feel most broken, God can use you to heal someone else. Now, I was thinking about Peter, you know, and I was thinking about, and I'll preach on this later, you know, the, 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 uh, the account where Jesus walks on the water and then they're all freaking out. Hey, it's a ghost. Yikes. And Jesus says, no, it's me. And Peter said, oh, Lord, if it's you, then, you know, invite me out, right? So what does Peter do? He goes out. You know, I was thinking about Peter. It's like, you know, what if Peter said... Lord, oh, I see it's you. And uh, Jesus said, come on out on the water. He said, oh, no, it's fine. I believe in you. Jesus, you're even the Messiah. I believe in you. Peter, come on the water. No, that's okay. You're even the Holy One of God. Peter, come on the water. No, that's okay. Lord, I believe. I believe. I believe. Did he believe? No. He professed he believed, but he didn't believe. Now, let's say I believed that if I walked off the step, I would walk in the air. Let's say I believed that. I said to you, I believe that will happen. What are you going to say to me? Do it. (laughs) You going to come to the ER? No. That's, I mean, silly illustration, but it proves the point. It's easy to say we believe things. You have to step, brother. Yeah. And the problem is, we, we wait for the, we wait for, oh, I gotta be infused with the, with the, the strength, or I have to be infused with something before I step. No, you step and then you're infused. Yeah. You believe and then you receive. You don't receive and then you believe. None of the people that God has called and used over the years ever felt qualified. 
None of them were ever ready. Because the things that God calls us to do are miraculous things. I don't care how many degrees you have. You have no ability whatsoever to lead someone to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how good your, your evangelistic techniques are. You know why? Because they need a resurrection of the soul. Amen. And you don't, you don't do that. Now, you can explain the gospel. You can answer questions. You can be clear and all of that. But if there's no power from God, there's no conversion. Amen. So God uses weak and broken people Because then he receives all the glory for the work that is done. But how does he do this? How does he take uh, ordinary people and do extraordinary things? He does it by the power of his spirit. We're told in uh, Habakkuk, I believe it is, God said, when the Jews were complaining about the temple being rebuilt, and basically saying, you know, I don't don't think it's going to happen. God said, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how God's work gets done. God's work is accomplished through God's spirit. You know, we can do a lot in the flesh. We can build churches in the flesh. We can build cathedrals in the flesh. But the work of God that transforms lives, that raises people from the dead, that heals bodies, that delivers them from demonic oppression, the work of God we see in the Gospels, this work is the work of God's Holy Spirit. Just think of the apostles before and after the resurrection. I mean, it's easy to criticize them, and I I don't want to do that too much as we go through the book of Mark. But let's all be honest, sometimes they were just stupid. Okay? But we also know that they're a great picture of us sometimes too, right? right? So, you know, they argue, here Jesus is ready to go to the cross and they're arguing about who's greatest. You know, I mean, just some of the stuff you're like, did, did, did you really just do that? Yeah, they really did it. They were broken, they were weak, they were prone to err. And before the resurrection and before Pentecost, they were afraid and unbelieving. But then all of a sudden you read the book of Acts in chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit comes down and these men are different men. They are different men. Peter denies his Lord and he runs in fear from a little girl, a little servant girl. After the Spirit comes upon him, he stands up in front of the Pharisees and says, you crucified Jesus. Well, what happened to that man? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of Jesus Christ transformed him, changed him, empowered him, emboldened him. See, this is how God's work gets done. It gets done through God's Spirit. And this is how God can take ordinary people and do extraordinary things. He can take weak people and do strong things. He can take foolish people and do wise things because of His Holy Spirit that dwells in and with His people. I need more amens than that. Notice this back in Mark, chapter 3. We're going to wrap it up here. Notice this. In verse 13 and 14, 
And he went up in the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. And then he appointed the twelve, um, and some of your uh, scripture says, whom he also named apostles. But that word appointed there is actually the word, uh, could be translated a variety of ways, but it's the word that simply means made. He made them. Remember what Jesus said? We saw it in, in first chapter Mark. I will make you fishers of men. I will make you. I will change you. I will alter you. I will, I will create you. In Ephesians 2, after we get a wonderful description of salvation by grace, in verse 10, it says, For we are His workmanship, right? Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Same word. Created. Made. Carved. Molded. The word poema. Where we get the word poem. The only way the apostles, the fearful, weak, stupid apostles could become the men who turned the world upside down is because of what Jesus Christ did in and through them. He made them who they were. God makes us more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. God makes us wise even though we're foolish. God makes us strong even when we're weak. God does this. Jesus does this in us and through us. It's not us doing it for Him. It is Him doing it in and through us. He made the twelve what they were. So last question is, can He make us great for His kingdom? Yes. Yes. Some of you have more education than the apostles. Some of you have more wealth. Well, we probably have all more more wealth. More training. If he can do that with and through them, he can do that in us. What then do we need to do? Well, look at this. A little, little, another little word here in our text in Mark. In verse 13, it says, And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those he himself wanted. And what did they do? They came. They came to Jesus. Jesus can't make you if you're running away. Jesus can't make you if you're not spending time with Him. Because it's in His presence that we are transformed. It's in His presence that we are made new. It's in His presence that we are literally renewed day by day in the inner man. It is in His presence, through His Spirit working us, in His presence that we are transformed from mere worldlings into warriors for Jesus Christ. It's in His presence. Now, when I got saved, I realized that there was a difference between believing in Jesus and trusting Jesus. Because I was believing in Jesus, it was a gradual process, I began to believe in Jesus... And I came to the conviction that, that the scriptures were true, and I've been reading them for at least a year, maybe a year and a half. 
that the scriptures were true, and it began to dawn on me the implications of that were, were life-altering. But I also realized that like Peter in the boat, that I was in the boat and I was professing that I believed. And that the true test of my faith was would I step out of the boat? Now, I believe Peter believed in the boat. But he demonstrated his faith when he stepped out of the boat. And it is, it is one thing to believe the claims of Christianity. It's one thing to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, or that Jesus can do what he says he can do. It's one thing to profess that and believe it at one level. It is an entirely different thing to surrender your life to him. And then say, do it in me. Completely different. We not only believe in Jesus, we believe Jesus. We trust Jesus. That means we come to Jesus in a very personal way. And this is not a gospel invitation for those of you that don't know Christ. This is a gospel invitation for those of you that know Christ. The transformation needed in your life comes from being with Jesus. He invited them to come. Right? And notice verse 14. you got to pay attention to the text. Then he appointed the twelve, and notice what it says, that they might be with him. That's the first thing. That precedes the preaching and the power to heal and the casting out demons to be with him. We are called likewise. Maybe not to be an apostle. Maybe not to be a worldwide evangelist, but you never know what God can do with you. You know, I just think, what what if Moody had said, God, no, no. You can't, you can't send me out in the fields of the, of the Civil War to lead dying men to you because I'm just, I'm just a salesman. What if he said, God, no, you can't use me to start the YMCA because I'm just, a, I'm just, I just sell shoes. I, I, I got to deal with people's stinky feet all day. That's what I do. I mean, what if Spurgeon said, God, you can't use me because, you know, I'm too young. I haven't been to seminary yet. Hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people came to Christ because of Spurgeon. Do you realize that? What if they'd said no? Well, they didn't say no because they knew Jesus. And they trusted Jesus. And the invitation of the twelve to to, uh, be with Jesus, this invitation is open to all of us. And this is why Jesus said that it is better that he goes away than that he stays. Because now every one of us can have immediate access to him. Every one of us can have intimate fellowship with him. And I don't know about you, but I don't want my, I don't want to look back on my life and say, you know what? There's really nothing to show for the kingdom. I don't want that, do you? Of course not. You want to be able to look back at your life and say, you know what, 
It wasn't my job. It wasn't the degrees I got. It wasn't my nice house. But man, what I did for the kingdom. Because when you when you die and you go into glory and you stand before the Lord, you're not going to say, hey, Lord, look at my check stub from work. <laughs> you're just not going to do that. But rather, Lord, here am I and the children you have given me. Here am I and the ones I have led to you. Here am I and the ones that you have used to, to minister to. See, that's what we're going to do when we stand before the Lord. But we have to come to Jesus, Christian, and we have to spend time with him. And he will change you if you let him. He will use you if you let him. I am telling you, friends, the the only obstacle for your use in the kingdom is unbelief. That's the obstacle. How many times have Christians said to God, well, Lord, no, not me, because I'm not qualified. Or, Lord, I'm, I, I, Lord, I, no, I'm too busy, or, Lord, I'm, uh, whatever. You know what I mean? Peter couldn't walk on the water, but Jesus could make him walk on the water. Right? We can do nothing apart from him, Jesus said. Have we not learned this? Have we not learned this? If we don't abide in him, we, do, we bear no fruit. Come to Jesus, Christian. Spend time with him. He's calling you to him. And that call is an invitation first to fellowship, but then it is an invitation to service. And if you will surrender yourself to him, he can do extraordinary things through you, even though you may be ordinary. Because that's what he does for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. I believe the Holy Spirit is talking to you. To you, Christian. He's speaking to you. He's calling you and asking you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Not to be saved, but to be used. So that you might be extraordinary for the kingdom. Do you trust Jesus, Christian? Do you really believe in Jesus? Then when he speaks to you, when he calls you, say yes. Say yes to him. Yes, Lord, I will speak of you when you prompt me. Yes, Lord, I will intercede Yes, Lord, I will serve. Yes, Lord, I will give. Yes, Lord, I will, I will be whatever you call me to be. I will do the unimaginable. I will do the impossible. I will do the unreasonable. Through your power, Lord, and your grace.